one week later. Happy Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas season. Before our new podcast season of Christmas Magic, let's finish off our dystopian doom series we started at the top of November with a whole other wicked government for you to rise up against. In a world ruled by 12 alliances, one young man has a chance to compete in the chase for a chance to pass exactly one law. But how can a newly freed people live under grace? Bradley Caffey, author of the Chase Runner series, will dash into the studio and lead the resistance for our next episode. Fantastical Truth returns from a holiday break. This podcast from lorehaven.com helps explore fantastical stories for God's glory, and we apply their meanings to the real world. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven and co-author of The Pop Culture Parent, and I am not fast. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I am also not a runner. When I was in high school, I was on the swim team, which is a lot harder than running in some ways, but running is not great for me because I am somewhat flat-footed. And this is episode 139, What If You Could Win a Race and Change World Law? And we'll be talking about the Chase Runner series with author Bradley Caffey. This is a series that somehow we've managed to review all three installments of the trilogy at lorehaven.com. We will put those review links in the show notes for you, faithful listener. Uh, it's also a newer dystopian series. Uh, on the other side of the Thanksgiving break, uh, we had uh, Kathy McCrum in. Her uh, sci-fi series is a bit more futuristic, uh, more specifically science fiction oriented. But every dystopian story has a, at least a sci-fi edge to it. And that's probably why I've read uh, more of these books than I thought I would have, Zach. I'm trying to count now, though, the total number of newer dystopian novels that I've read. And I think at this point, it may actually be just the Hunger Games books. And that was just back during the peak of their popularity. And it was because nobody would shut up about them. And for a while there, it seemed that all of the YA books were going to be all dystopian all the time. Uh, those uh, subgenres seem to have fallen behind in the race for the top of the YA charts, uh, which seems to now be ruled uh, by fantasy novels with titles like A X of Y and Z. Uh, those titles have been multiplying all across the bestseller list. But a lot of readers still love dystopian books, uh, particularly uh, homeschooled students. As I mentioned in a, the start of this dystopian doom series on the podcast, uh, homeschoolers seem willing now to branch beyond uh, uniquely uh, eschatological uh, forecasts of the future. Uh, it's not just the beast coming along to persecute Christians uh, before or after a rapture. Uh, more Christians seem uh, open to different possible dooms that we might face, uh, among them uh, Bradley Caffey's take on the dystopian doom that awaits us all. Well, I really like the concept of this book and the series in that the teenagers that are competing in this dystopia are not simply trying to survive and not be killed on live television, but they are actually being awarded with a prize to change something, to do something positive and redemptive maybe in this world. So I'm really excited to dive into this more and hear how Bradley came up with this idea and what were some of the themes that he wove in about dystopia that are different from other dystopian books we talk about, where, as our series implies, it's usually doom. Uh, there's usually nihilism. There's usually just death and destruction and hopelessness. You know, is there going to be a different trend in this series? So I'm looking forward to talking about that. Speaking of dystopian books and fantasy, our next sponsor is a book that actually combines both based on the description 
It's our cover sponsor again, Oasis Family Media, and their next novel comes out in December. It is called Kalor. It's a fantasy from J.J. Fisher by way of Enclave Publishing. What if you could edit memories with a single touch? The world that was is gone, lost to everything except living memory, but remembering comes at a terrible price. 62 years after the apocalypse, a new society has emerged from the ashes of the old world where highly valued memories are traded and nostalgia is worth dying and even killing for. Enslaved by a cruel master, Stephanie Winter is forced to use her rare ability to manipulate memories to numb the darkest secrets of the ruling aristocracy. Then Lord Adamo appears, speaking of a powerful relic capable of permanently erasing memories and recovering Stephanie's own lost childhood. But not everything about the young lord is as it seems, and soon Stephanie must choose between helping Lord Adamo forget his past or journeying deep into the land of Lethe, where the truth about who she really is might finally be revealed and a long-desired future restored. This is book one of the Nightingale Trilogy, a new series from author J.J. Fisher from Enclave Publishing. Go to our show notes for the link, and to learn more, go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, I hear a telltale roar over the planetary horizon. I think a certain spaceship may be on the way. Bradley got tired of running around per his brand, so he is taken to the skies. Let's see what craft will touch down to the studios. Bradley Caffey just touched down in an X-Wing. He is the creator of the Chase Runner series with the Chase, the Choice, and the Change. He trained for vocational ministry through the Moody Bible Institute and Dallas Theological Seminary before he spent 12 years in the pastorate. That's where he learned his love of storytelling. And in April 2013, he began the work of transforming his idea into his first novel, The Chase. Now he lives in North Carolina with his wife and children and now three books in this uh, dystopian trilogy. Bradley, welcome to Lorehaven Studios. It's fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, Bradley. So tell us, how did you first discover biblical faith and fantastical stories? Yeah, well, in terms of faith, my story is a very common one. I grew up in a home where faith was just always present. I don't remember not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was really just a, a journey of kind of adopting that as my own. I mean, so many kids who grew up in that kind of environment, church and faith and prayer and those kinds of things, they're normalized. But there has to come a point when you realize this is not my parents' faith. This is not something we just do as a family. This is mine. And a lot of that for me came as is common in teen years where I felt really lost. Uh, didn't really know who I was. Didn't really know where I belonged. I was a bit of an oddball. Uh, I didn't fit into any group. And the only place I felt at home was among the body of Christ. Yeah, you know, at church, youth group, all those kinds of things. And something began to grow in my heart that said, I, I want to be part of this. I want to make sure this happens for everyone else who's just like me. And I think that is the moment where I sort of owned a faith that had always been there. Coming to faith was probably a childhood thing. I don't even remember it. I know I believed. But in that moment as a teenager, I said, this is mine. I'm going to make my life about this. You know, I, I no longer just believe, but I am all in to, you know, the gospel and what that means and its transformative effects on my life and the way I wanted to pattern my life around that. So I, that's sort of equated to my call to ministry all at the same time is, you know, I really had to take a pretty bold stance against family that didn't understand making a choice like that and turning down college scholarships and saying, I'm, you know, reorienting my whole life around this faith that you taught me. <laughs> and um, it was, it was kind of an interesting 
journey for me, but that launched me into Bible college and seminary and ultimately 12 years in the pastorate. Now, in terms of imagination, that's always been my story. I've always been a very imaginative person. I've been a storyteller since I was a child, uh, even if I was the only audience. So many days were spent. I was a bit of a loner as a kid, so I'd be out in the woods and the trees and the and the animals and the things out in the woods became whole worlds that I would explore and in my mind. And even as a child, I would write. I, I didn't realize this until uh, after I was published, but I realized how much I wrote as a kid. Do you remember those choose your own adventure books that were so popular so oh, yeah. long ago? Mm-hmm. I used to write my own. I figured out a rubric to how to deal with all the different storylines and the pages and my buddies and I would sit down and pen our own Choose Your Own Adventure books, fully illustrated all the things. I thought it was fascinating. And I didn't realize till later that keeping track of those stories was a little bit complicated, but it just made sense to me. I love story. And that translated very well then when I entered the pastorate. Anytime I speak to a group, whether it was young people where I got my start in youth ministry or ultimately when I was a lead pastor and preaching in front of a church, story was part of it. You know, in fact, I used to have people tell me all the time, the favorite part of my sermons was when I would get up and I would start with just a story that illustrated the biblical truth that I was about to dive into from the scripture. And a lot of times it centered around my kids or something goofy that happened in our home. But I became very comfortable helping people connect to biblical ideas through story. So that's really my imagination has kind of always been something that's been present in my life. And story has been a big part of that. That's cool. Bradley, you've uh, reversed the polarity of the testimonial flow there. As a teenager, you're supposed to despise the local church and start deconstructing <laughs> because they didn't answer your questions or let you do what you wanted to uh, with the women folk. Uh, that's just completely yeah. weird. And I so appreciate you for that. And it's great to hear about how uh, Christ has been working in your life, even from that young age. So I'm curious what role specifically, if any, uh, dystopian or sci-fi type books uh, may have played in your imaginative growth uh, from the teen years onward. Oh, goodness. I'll be honest. I despised reading when I was a teenager. (laughs) Uh, I don't think authors are supposed to say that. but uh, No, you're not, especially when pitching the book. I hate this genre, but my book is in this genre. <laughs> it, it, it's not even a genre thing. I just I think the you know I went uh, the public school education system really turned me off to reading. Um, a lot of oh, the books wow. that I was required to read in the school system were garbage, full of ideas that I just wasn't comfortable with. And uh, in speaking to my teachers, they said, "Well, you're allowed to ask for a replacement book, but it has to have similar content." So I'm like, "Well, that's not helpful." Uh, I remember being forced to read books that included immorality and you know adult topics that. I don't think we're had a place in school. Uh, and yet these were considered great literature. And I, there was a part of me that said, if this is what books are about, I want nothing to do with it. I read voraciously as a young child, but my teen years, I abandoned it completely and had to rediscover my love for fiction as an adult. And so I guess that might be why I have a little bit of a heart for writing for young adults, because I want people to still enjoy reading. I want to provide stories that people feel comfortable with that are clean, but still have all the adventure and the struggle and the just the imagination that they're looking for. So they don't have a journey like mine. So yeah, authors aren't supposed to say they hated reading, but guess I'm kind of on a journey to help people not hate it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can totally uh, relate to that. In high school, in my English class, we had a lot of books we had to read and we had to do a lot of essays and a lot of analysis, which frankly just kind of killed the love of reading. 
mm-hmm. like you said, a lot of the books were just books like, why am I reading this as a 16 year old? This doesn't really seem uh, so great and, and, and really just not very relevant uh, to, you know, modern life or whatever. It, it became kind of a joke in my English class to not read a book. And, and then to write an essay on what you think the book was about or what, if you found cliff notes or something. Yeah. Uh, a couple episodes ago, we were talking about 1984 and Brave New World. And I was supposed to have read both of those in my high school English class, but I only read Brave New World. And for 1984, I think I watched the movie. But even that, I <laughs> ended up just like reading the cliff notes to try to understand it. Uh, one of my friends who I, who shall remain nameless from uh, 10th grade English, for one of the books we were supposed to read, he just drew a picture of the cover like freehand for his essay and he turned that in. <laughs> so, you know, it was just kind of like we we all really didn't like the books we were assigned to read. But outside of that, we were all big readers. And so I, I was really into the Wheel of Time at the time, which were 800, 900 page books. I would come home every day and read those. Uh, some of my friends were into like Ender's Game or the uh, Kim Stanley Robinson uh, Red Mars series. So everyone I knew, we, we loved reading, but we just hated those books. So I can relate to that of wanting to like reading, but not liking what you're reading and then rediscovering that as an adult. We're like, hey, there, there's something really good here that sort of got polluted and, and corrupted along the way, which is mm-hmm. very similar to the whole topic of dystopia, which is a utopia that gets distorted and corrupted along the way. It sounds like the actual dystopian government all along was the public school system. So parents <laughs> rise up, form your unions, <laughs> uh, get elected to the school boards, all that sort of thing. Uh, moving on from that, uh, it does seem that this opposition to certain required books in the public school has been a trend for quite some time. <laughs> and I say that as an outsider. Uh, I was uh, homeschooled uh, all the way through my senior year in high school. So uh, the public school experience is a bit alien to me, and increasingly, I think that that may be a good thing. But God does work in mysterious ways, and no matter where people are or what educational choices have been uh, chosen for them, so I'm glad that he's brought you through that, uh, Bradley. Uh, let's move to chapter one here of our main discussion. I'm curious uh, regarding the Chase Runner series of uh, what ideas and images formed your story world. What made you decide I'm going to write? Uh, this kind of teen-oriented, kind of YA-oriented uh, dystopian book. And then I think, if I remember right, uh, you originally had uh, published it yourself uh, before it got picked up by Mountain Brook Fire, which, of course, Disclosure is also a, a sponsor uh, for the last several episodes, including this one. Uh, how'd you get started uh, on The Chase? So The Chase was really birthed during a very difficult time in my life. I'm no longer in the pastorate after 12 years. I did suffer burnout. Uh, which is an unfortunate trend among pastors. Uh, Fewer and fewer are making it as a career for the rest of their life. Bit of a passion area of mine, but not related to today. So it was during that time when I was really suffering and starting to navigate the, the idea of maybe I'm not cut out to do this for the rest of my life. I was actually woken in the middle of the night by a dream. I dreamt this book. The entire world, the entire concept, And I'm not even sure why, but I'm not a person who keeps a tablet next to my bed, but I did that night and I grabbed it, penned a few notes at about 2.30 in the morning, went back to sleep and I woke up the next morning and looked at what I wrote and there was the concept for The Chase. I had never written a book in my life. The Chase is literally the first thing I have ever written since I've launched this new uh, writing venture. The the book actually got, uh, the first manuscript was written after my burnout. And uh, I had about six months where I was unemployed, had no idea what to do with my life, actually ended up in therapy, 
uh, diagnosed with depression and all of those things that kind of go along with burnout. And as part of my healing process, I just wrote. And this story began to take form on the page. And unintentionally, but I'm sure a lot of writers do this, um, all of the things that I felt uh, from that experience, the expectation, the failure, the, the struggle to do what I'm supposed to be doing with my life, um, ended up getting poured into the pages. And um, the chase, especially with the, the primary character, Willis, uh, you see him deal with a lot of that, that he grew up being told what he was supposed to be in the world and trying to live up to that is his journey. And then ultimately getting to the place where he needs to make a choice if that really is going to be uh, what he does. And I think a lot of the emotions I was feeling and the, the, the darkness I found myself in really kind of lent itself to writing this world and forming it on the page. Yeah, th- there's a uh, ministry here in Texas, Two Ministers, and it's like a retreat center. It's a sort of a pastoral care for pastors. And I, the first time I went there, I remember... Well, I can't remember the exact number, but I remember being blown away by how many pastors burn out of ministry or just or leave. And this uh, this ministry group here that's part of this like bed and breakfast, they really took that as a mission to try to help pastors rest, help them be equipped because it is so common. Again, I, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like my jaw hit the floor. I remember when I saw it. I thought, how can we be losing this many people? Like there's something not very healthy about it. And I think you're right that that's so confusing (laughs) to go through that. Like it shouldn't be that way because Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't seem to comport with our faith where Jesus said, like, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Um, There's something dysfunctional that's happening where those in ministry are not getting that rest that they're telling others about. And so I, I totally sympathize with you going through that because that's just so earth shattering. And so I can see how a story helps you navigate that and sort of put those thoughts onto paper that it's like these nebulous emotions of, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's probably a sense of betrayal or a sense of disenchantment. And I, I love that you are working through that through story, you know, not just walking away from everything, but, but really digging into that. and you know, trying to find some answers, but also trying to find a new direction in life. So what, you know, what, what were some of the things you discovered through writing it? Like what, what did you discover about yourself? What did you discover about your faith, about God, about uh, Christian community? What, what are some new things that have kind of come into your life through that? That's a fantastic question. Um, I think the discovery for me was I was going to be okay. Hmm. You know, I, without giving too much away from the, the story, you know, no spoilers here, but, you know, one, one of the biggest things that Willis has to struggle with is, well, what happens if I don't live up to what everyone thinks I'm supposed to do? Everyone thinks he's going to win the chase. He is the best in the world. And he starts to wonder, well, what will I do if I do win? What will happen if I don't? What if I let everybody down? What if I let myself down? What if... What if it's all really, that's the question you ask in that season of life is what if I did something differently? You begin playing back every choice you've made and you wonder, you know, was there a hinge point where, man, if I had just gone down a different road, this would have played out very differently. And it's a really terrifying place to be, especially in the pastorate where it's so tied to your faith that you're not just having an identity crisis. You have a faith crisis. I got to the point where I wondered if it was all a sham. 
was this faith journey, this belief in the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, was I faking it for all of these years? And I actually got to the point where I wondered, am I going to hell? That was an utterly dark and terrifying place to get to. That was the lowest of the low. And I think that's what drew me to dystopian because I felt that was my life. My life had fallen apart. This wonderful thing that I felt like I had been called to and still believe in. You know, the funny thing is I never lost faith in the church and the need for the church. A lot of burned out pastors reject it all. Mm. And I still wanted to be a part of it. But just wondering if I had missed something and going into the dark places and realizing that even in the darkest of the dark, there is light. There, there, there is hope. Um, and sometimes it's just a glimmer. And as I traveled my own journey and found those glimmers of hope and had to hold onto them so tightly, I think that's why I loved writing this story, because this is what the characters have to do. There are characters who aren't sure they're going to live up to expectation. There are other characters who think they're not going to make it out alive. And mm -hmm. they, they're they despairing even of life. And I, I remember those feelings and, and wondering, am, am I going to make it through tomorrow? And to just grab onto the tiniest little piece of hope, that, that little glimmer, that little candlelight in the absolute pitch black darkness, um, and just focusing on it. It's, it's, it's the thing that got me through. A lot of help, a lot of therapy, a lot of wonderful people, and an amazing family who never, uh, who never left my side. And I, I realized the importance, in addition, of community. Uh, I had to have people around me. So many people who are going through difficulty isolate themselves. I mean, isn't, isn't that the tactic the enemy takes? You know, he gets us in dark places and then we isolate ourselves and he has us to himself to just attack and discourage and despair. And that's why a lot of the book that I wrote, uh, this series, there's a lot of characters. I mean, really, the first book, a lot of people tell me, love the book, but man, I had to wade through the, <laughs> how many characters there were. But community played such an important part. You know, all the different people that we have in our life, we have got to do this journey with other people. No one is ever expected to do it alone. And I think that's, that played a very important part to the story that I penned was everybody realizes they need other people. Even the main character, who is the best in the world, is going to win this by himself he realizes how much he needs other people in his life, even people that aren't accomplished at what he does. I love what you said there about even in the darkness, the light shines. That, And it's fitting that this is episode 139, because in Psalm 139, it says, If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. And, you know, that, that's the God that we, that we serve, that we follow, that we know. There's no place that's too dark for him to see into our lives and to find us. And so, but I, I love that emphasis that you have that, that we're not just wandering around alone. Like we, we need, you know, we, we can't find our way out of that darkness alone. It really does come through community. And perhaps that's part of the problem that leads to a lot of burnout is, is that a lot of people in ministry just think that they can't be vulnerable or open up to anyone else and they, they can't share that that faith struggle that that walk with others that they think it's just they're on the peak of a mountain that you know they have to perform for everyone else and so i think that having that companionship is really what what makes the difference 
Lorehaven's community has been enjoying the Chase Runner series. Uh, we have at least one big fan of the trilogy on our Lorehaven review team, and so that's how we've been able to get through reviews of every single book. Uh, the first review, the summary is uh, for the Chase, that readers who catch a second wind will find a gripping adventure and reason to anticipate the next match. So quite the start there uh, for the Lorehaven review of the Chase. Uh, in honor of the recent celebration of Thanksgiving Day, I'm actually going to do a very Puritan thing uh, after our next sponsor. Our next sponsor is actually Bradley Caffey's publisher, Mountain Brook Fire. Uh, they have another fantasy book we're promoting today. That is Wraithwood by Alyssa Rowett. This is a young adult fantasy, the debut from this author, and it earned high praise from Forward Reviews, Reader's Favorite, Portland Book Review, and the 2022 Realm Awards. That's where Wraithwood just this past summer won Best Fantasy Audiobook. Here's an endorsement from author Carolyn George. Immersive, atmospheric, and brimming with magic, Wraithwood presents a skillful take on Arthurian legends, harnessing a gothic manner and ensemble of enchanting characters to create an unforgettable read. Wraithwood is available at Amazon, and we actually reviewed that novel. You can find those links in our show notes for episode 139. Or you can go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Bradley, it occurs to me that I can now reveal the secret surprise twist ending for this series of the podcast, uh, Dystopian Doom. Uh, it actually matches with the origins of the American celebration of Thanksgiving Day because the pilgrims and the separatists, or rather the Puritans and the separatists, together known as the pilgrims, if I remember my history correctly, we're fleeing from a government that was acting rather dystopian, uh, at least in terms of persecuting uh, these uh, pilgrims uh, for their faith. And as you were speaking about the parallels between this uh, dystopian uh, fictional government going on and some of the heart struggles you were having, uh, it didn't sound like you were saying, well, uh, the church is the real dystopian all along. You know, I, I referenced uh, deconstruction a little bit ago, but it sounds like you've done that uh, in a, a far more healthy way. Uh, that has ultimately led you uh, back toward Jesus Christ uh, and his word and the power of the gospel. But apart from that power, the only power that we have is in our hearts. This is the Puritan thing I'm about to do. Uh, the reigning influence of sin in our hearts is the first dystopia we must resist. There you go. What do you think about that? Uh, you may even get a love triangle and some color coding and uh, some cool covers uh, in this fight against sin. Very Puritan thought there. Uh, which leads into my second question here, Bradley. Um, we were talking, uh, Zach and I, about some other dystopian series. Uh, Zach mentioned our episode about Brave New World in 1984, doing a compare and contrast between those classic novels, which probably, by the way, might be the novels that y'all not read in uh, certain high school, especially if you have certain sensitivities. But how do Christians see dystopian fiction differently, you think, uh, from secular readers? Uh, there's a lot of doom going on right now, not just because it's election month, but because everybody one way or another is fearful of some kind of dystopian government or some abuse of power uh, that can take our freedoms from us. Christians ought to have uh, a hope that even if that were to happen, as it has so often happened in the past, then Christ will be our true Lord. Uh, we don't have to fear. And yet, uh, what other differences or similarities do you think uh, exist between Christian fans of dystopian fiction and secular fans? Well, I think if you read a lot of the dystopia that is out there, I mean, from the classics like 1984, Brave New World, to my shame, I've never read Brave New World. I did read 1984 to some of the more modern ones that have even been turned into blockbuster films. The Hunger Games. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Hunger the Games, pin. the Divergent trilogy, the Maze Runner trilogy, all of these kinds of things. They end in darkness. Mm-hmm. Every last yeah. one of them. They they end hopeless. That the the dystopia doesn't end, and they're left with this almost fatalistic posture of, well, this is it. If if this is the world we end up in, there is no hope. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. There is no way out. And I think when Christians engage dystopia, we do it differently. I, I know with everything that I write, I mean, I joke with people that, you know, when I write dystopian, I write about, you know, hopelessness and darkness and gloominess. And, but I also write about hope. And I really feel like what dystopia really is about is finding hope in the darkness, finding what is good in the middle of everything going upside down. I believe that's biblical. There's a lot of fear going on in our country about what does the future mean and in the world, what what direction is the world heading? But I think it's biblical. I think we're promised that things are going to get a lot worse before they get a lot better. And we see cycles of this throughout scripture. I mean, you know, you read the Old Testament and God allowed hostile foreign governments to take his people out of the land. Yeah. And, <laughs> and those were still under God's providence. You know, and you look, you look at some of the atrocities that these nations committed. God allowed that because he still had his providential hand on history. And I think as Christians, we need to look at the world around us and realize, yeah, man, a lot seems to be headed in the wrong direction. But that does not mean that God's hand has slipped. He is still in control of history. And he has promised us that as bad as it's going to get, in the end, he wins. In the end, he is the victor. In the end, there is a glimmer of hope that may not be very visible right now, but it's something that every single believer in Jesus Christ can hold on to. And I want that reflected in fiction. Uh, If we're going to read about darkness, if we're going to read about oppressive governments and these systems that take kids out of their homes and put them into this race and this fight for their lives, which is in the story that I wrote, there needs to be, for the sake of the reader, there needs to be this thread of it gets better there is hope that doesn't mean there won't be suffering i think sometimes we confuse hope with a lack of suffering and i think hope is actually something that's found in the midst of suffering and more christians need to get on board with that in my opinion Mm -hmm. um god is not here to deliver us from this world he's here to strengthen us to live despite this world to be the ray of hope in the world because we ultimately know where it's located and it's it's in Jesus Christ. We need to be pointing the way because we found it. I think so often we fail to point the way because we haven't really digested it ourselves that, you know, whether we're trying to play the political game or, you know, just, you know, curl up at a ball of bitterness and this world's going to, you know, where in a handbasket, we've been designated as God's light bearers in this world. And we need to be pointing the way. Bradley, you almost incidentally quoted from Hebrews 11, talking about the saints who died in faith, but in hope of the promise. Uh, Starting in verse 15, it says, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's the famous city language uh, in the New Testament prophecies, the coming new heavens and new earth, uh, somehow realized in the form of a new Jerusalem descending to the surface of a redeemed planet. 
uh, if the evil dystopian government is persecuting you, Christian, then you live in hope. You do not live in despair. The system is not going to continue forever. Uh, it will be destroyed, very probably literally, by fire from heaven at the end and the planet remade uh, with a perfect leader, King Jesus, on the throne. The dystopians will be gone forever. The utopia will come to earth and it will fill the entire universe uh, with the paradise of Jesus Christ. Yeah, Stephen, there's a, a very popular YA dystopian series uh, that came out, I don't know, 10 years ago or something that I I really liked. Up, up until the end, when it was basically meet the new boss, same as the old boss, was, was kind of the ending, which, which as we've discussed with 1984, you know, Big Brother wins in the end and uh, Brave New World, you know, hedonism or whatever, the world system wins in the end. And yes, that that is so often a trend. And, you know, I I guess for a godless worldview, what, what else are you going to end with? You know, uh, in any other hopeful ending seems probably fake to people that don't think there is a God who intervenes in history. And I appreciate how, you know, with, with C.S. Lewis's uh, space trilogy that there, those characters go through some really dark stuff in there, but there is a God who's at work and it's, it's often, you know, very much in the background, same way in Narnia. It's not like Aslan is in every, uh, Aslan is not in every chapter, but um, I think Christian writers uniquely recognize that there is a God that's at work in the world. And a a story where that where, where there is no redeeming ending or or some kind of redemptive thread uh, is itself not realistic because that's not the real universe that we live in. Yeah, truly, we live in a we live in a world where I, I like how you say that. You know, in the absence of a God perspective, we're going to end in darkness. Yeah. You know that that it really is. It really is the only conclusion outside of Jesus Christ that we can have. And to for the Christian to understand that the last chapter is already written. That that's that's the beauty of the story that we live as the body of Christ. We've already read the end of the book. We've spoiled it. You know, we we know how it all turns out. And so we can navigate these middle chapters well. Uh, even with uh, you know a sense of joy and hope if we fully embrace the fact that we are living for the end. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of the next, and we're looking to take as many people with us as we can. Amen. Preach. The moment ago I did a Puritan thing and compared dystopian governments to the ruling influence of sin in our hearts before Christ starts moving in. Speaking of Puritans, there's a famous author named John Bunyan who wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. That's a classic story of redemption, allegory, and theological poignance that has profoundly impacted millions of readers over three centuries and changed the landscape of English literature forever. It's also a story with a total lack of robots, space marines, or talking platypuses. So our next sponsor fixed that. You're welcome. That sponsor is Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded, a narrative podcast that you can listen to on the podcast app you're using right now. Just search for Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded to start listening for free. You can find some starter links in our show notes for episode 139 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. You'll also want to see the totally boss cover there uh, featuring the titular Pilgrim in a rather uh, familiar game-like pose that you may remember from per first-person shooters uh, a few decades ago. So Bradley, now that the third book in your series is out, the full trilogy is out, what is next for you in your creative journey as a writer? 
Well, I'm actually in the process of uh, pitching a new manuscript to publishers, completely unrelated to the Chase Runner series, but also dystopia of its own sort. It's a little more of kind of an any day sort of dystopian. You're, you're engaging the story as everything unfolds and, and turns wrong, but it engages a lot of the, uh, the current obsession with technology. Really, the storyline is about a phone app that everyone is obsessed with it. The whole nation's playing it. Doesn't matter what age or people group, everyone is on this thing. Um, and at the day comes when the phone app actually takes over people and they start to take on the attributes of their avatars and the hunt begins. And it's all told from the perspective of a young man whose father didn't let him play the game. And so he's watching everything unfold and nothing's happening to him. So you're really getting this uh, you know, outsider perspective on the world kind of turning in on itself. So that one's out there right now. I won't, I won't give much more. Uh, waiting to see if anyone has some interest. If they don't, certainly we'll probably release it independently. But very excited about that one. And just penned the first 5,000 words of my next manuscript after that just a couple days ago. Okay, that, that's really cool. That uh, Right away, what came to mind is a, a 1991 or so episode of the Star, Star Trek The Next Generation. It's called The Game. And it's about this um, headset virtual reality or augmented reality uh, video game that that gets really popular on the ship because of some uh, uh, alien or someone introduces it to the crew. Uh, but the two people that don't play it are the teenagers, uh, Wesley Crusher and a character uh, played by Ashley Judd, which I can't remember her character's name, uh, which is weird to see Ashley Judd as a teenager. But they figure out, hey, there's something really weird about this game. Like uh, pe people are turning into zombies and, and their, their personalities are changing and uh, it's something beyond just a video game addiction and they're the ones that kind of save the day so i like that in your series that there's there's this teenager that's kind of left out of this and he's the one that's going wait a minute <laughs> something is going really wrong here <laughs> early so I love warning it. yeah <laughs> yeah early warning yeah. of the gamified algorithm there a spoiler alert uh, the app in bradley's world uh, has a name that could rhyme with rick rock so Unless we get that banned in the United States and uh, sent back to its country of origin, I, I fear we will all meet the same fate. So just don't install it on your phone and nothing wrong will ever happen to you. <laughs> Bradley, where can folks find you on the web zones and with uh, any social media work that you're doing? E-newsletters, all that good stuff. Absolutely. Uh, one of the best ways to learn more about me and the things I'm writing is at my website. It's just www.bradleycafe.com. You can sign up for my newsletter. I even offer a free prequel to the Chase Runner series for signing up. Uh, you can learn a little bit more about one of the side characters and how he ends up on the space station training for the chase. It's actually a character that I think only has one line in the entire first book, <laughs> but you'll learn his whole backstory in that free uh, short uh, short piece of fiction. Social, uh, I am on Facebook and Instagram at Bradley Caffey Author in both locations. You can find me there. Not as active on some of the other social media, but certainly those two are a great place to find me. Love having people reach out to me and connect with me and uh, stay up to date on the next things that are coming. Well, I really appreciate your hopeful spirit uh, bringing the light against the dystopian doom. Any doom that we face uh, may be true, maybe in the future. But our Lord reigns supreme. He's sovereign over all dystopians, and he will ultimately subvert them. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you for writing some great stories. And you can find all those links in the show notes, uh, listener, as well as the links to there are reviews of the Chase Runner series from Bradley Caffey. 
Godspeed on your continuing race, good sir. Thank you guys very much. It's been great to be here and uh, just to share a little bit of what I've been doing. Stephen, I really enjoyed that discussion with Bradley, and I related so much to the questions that he was asking himself that the characters are going through, you know, what if I let others down? Uh, what or what if I did things differently? And in the end, will God win? Uh, these are such great questions to think through, and it's really cool how he's exploring that through a story. And one of the ways that people always let other people down is by playing Christmas music either too early or too late or playing the wrong kinds of Christmas songs. <laughs> There's a lot of debate about Christmas music. And so for our comm station today, we want to ask you, our listener, a question. What are your opinions and thoughts about Christmas music? So <laughs> when are you legally allowed to turn it on? When it, what is the song you are never allowed to play out loud? And what are your other thoughts about this genre of music? So we want to hear from you. Send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or comment uh, or tweet to us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We would like to feature a lot of listener feedback for our next episode. Meanwhile, at Lorehaven, again, a happy post-Thanksgiving. As we wrap the month of November, our Lorehaven Guild exclusive community on Discord is uh, finishing our exploration of the Andrew Peterson fantasy on the edge of the dark sea of darkness. We timed that so that we'd be finishing that book just before the start of the TV animated series by way of angel studios. So look forward to seeing that debut from that particular streaming service. Next up in the guild, we are starting our next book quest. And this one will cover Sharon Hink's newest fantasy dream of Kings. That's starting in the Lorehaven guild in the first full week of December. Go to lorehaven.com and look for the new book quest post at the top of the page to get more details about that. How to join the guild? It's simple. Just subscribe free to lorehaven.com. We will send you your exclusive invitation to the guild community. You can, of course, also choose what Lorehaven updates to receive every review every Friday, podcast episodes on Tuesday, and the articles that we do as well. It's all up to you. Uh, articles such as the ones that we are planning for the month of November, right around uh, Thanksgiving. Marion Jacobs uh, has an article about legalism, how Christians should respond to that with particular emphasis on fiction. And uh, Josiah DeGraff is continuing his series about discerning fiction as well. Very familiar, very loved topics at Lorehaven and very practical for Christian fans. He's going to address the issue of fiction that preaches. Yet another famous topic we get at Lorehaven. So visit the homepage to see those articles. Meanwhile, we're already planning our content for 2023, so please pray for us. Uh, this podcast is just a, a bit of what Lorehaven does. The heart of our mission is exploring fantastical stories for God's glory. We've been doing that under the Lorehaven name since 2018, so now going into, I think, our fourth or fifth uh, season or year of doing that, Zach. So please pray for us, faithful listeners, and check us out at lorehaven.com. Next on Fantastical Truth, Zach set this up earlier. It's the holiday season and whoop-dee-doo and hickory dock. Don't forget to hang up your sock. <laughs> this is just the best Christmas song ever. And you can fight me on that, uh, except I will throw the match because I am being sarcastic. Without a doubt, this is the worst written Christmas song I've ever heard of. But you have heard of it. And many other bad Christmas songs and great Christmas songs. As Zach mentioned, when should you start listening to the Christmas songs? What are your favorite songs, and should we as Christians have a new worship wars, even polite ones, 
over the secular songs versus the sacred Christmas songs. Come along with us while we begin our new podcast season with a Christmas music-themed episode as part of our new Christmas magic series on Fantastical Truth. Meanwhile, as we close our Dystopian Doom series for now, I just want to remind myself and you, yes, we may face dystopian government. We may face the worst-case scenario, but we remember that Christ is on his throne. He is the author of history. Any dystopian governments that arise are the exception that will prove his rule. That's what we keep in mind as we look forward to the good future, the utopian government under King Jesus ruling over all the cosmos as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. <laughs>